Anybody remember acapella vocal band, ABB? And those of us who are probably over the age of 40 will remember the first four that comprised acapella vocal band. Anybody remember Wes McKenzie? He sang bass. You know, everybody remembers the bass singer. Well, Wes now directs a, a sports management degree at Oklahoma Christian, and I've gotten to know Wes a little bit uh, over the years. He worked in the admissions department with my sister for uh, a number of years uh, before uh, receiving uh, training and education to begin uh, this new program at Oklahoma Christian. And any time I see Wes, I start singing Izod, Reebok, Guess, and L.A. Gear. Can anybody remember that one? What's your tag say? Come on, AVB fans. Anybody? Uh, where's Ryan Welch? Ryan, you remember that, don't you? I, no, you don't, are you too young for, the, for that AVB song? Now you're making me feel really old uh, this morning. But anyway, well, there was another, there was another song that, that AVB kind of popularized that, that really kind of teaches us a lesson or at least reminds us of who we are as the people uh, of God. The chorus went something like this. You can't go to church, as some people say, the common terminology we use every day. You can go to a building that is something you can do, but you can't go to church because the church is you. Yes. And so this morning, as we complete our series of sermons from uh, the book of uh, Acts, and we've used as our theme verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus, immediately before he ascends back to heaven, tells his apostles that you will be my witnesses. And that torch has now been passed down to us. And we are witnesses of the gospel of Jesus. We are God's people. We are the church. And I want to conclude this series uh, this morning by, by simply reflecting upon this word, church. And I, hopefully it'll just kind of remind us of, of who we are as God's uh, people. One of the, the books that I have used in recent years when I've studied the book of Acts uh, is written by a man named Kevin Rowe, who's a professor uh, of New Testament at, at Duke Divinity School. He wrote a little book on, on Acts titled World Upside Down, Reading Acts in the Greco-Roman Age. And here's what he says at the beginning of the book. Inasmuch as Acts serves as a norm for the life of Christian communities, it is a text which we continually return to gain or regain our theological bearings. And so this morning, as we complete this series of sermons, I want us to use the book of Acts to perhaps gain or regain our theological bearings about the word church. If you look up church on dictionary.com, the dictionary even gets it. The very first entry for church is a building for public Christian worship. And so I, I understand that when we say we go to church, we, we understand, I think deep down, that we are the church. 
But perhaps we need to be reminded of all the implications that come from being God's people. And so I want us to regain, uh, once again, our, our theological bearings from Acts on this word church with the purpose of better understanding who we are as God's people. So let's begin with a simple word study this morning uh, about the Greek word that is typically translated as church in our New Testament. It, of course, translates the Greek word uh, ekklesia. I'm sure you've been taught this before, uh, but again, by way of reminder. This noun is evidently derived from a compound verb, which means to call out or to call forth, to summon. It has been suggested that the term has its origin in the practice of the town herald calling people out of their homes to meet in some kind of public assembly. So the idea is that of free citizens, as opposed to those without civic rights, being summoned out of the general population. Hence the meaning called out or called forth. But the noun, practically speaking, refers then not so much to the action of, be of people being called out, but called together as a duly constituted assembly. So yes, as God's people, we are called out of this world into the body of Christ, but very practically speaking, we are called together. We assemble, we convene for a particular purpose. Uh, the word ekklesia translates the Hebrew word kahel in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And that word means, again, assembly, congregation, uh, convocation, or even company. It is used frequently throughout the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in reference to the nation of Israel. Israel, of course, being God's people called out of uh, the ethnicities in which they lived at, in the world at that time, but called together, summoned together, convened together as God's people. So since the English word church technically means a building, it is perhaps better to translate ecclesia as assembly, meeting, or congregation. So with that quick word study, let's go to the book of Acts. And let's, let's notice that the, this Greek word is found 23 times in the book of Acts. Once, it is used in reference to Israel. When they wandered in the desert, uh, Stephen, in his defense before the Jewish authorities in Acts 7, refers to Israel as God's assembly, God's church, uh, if you will. The people, uh, again, convened together, called out of this world as God's people. In Acts 19, three times, it's used in reference to an unruly public assembly. Uh, that's chapter 19, verses 32, 39, and 41. And there you see Luke use the word in its most basic or 
common understanding of people being called out of their homes into a public assembly which had convened in the ancient city of Ephesus. But the word ecclesia, for our purpose this morning, is found in the book of Acts 19 times in reference to what we again call the church or God's people. Don't want to read all of these texts this morning, but I've chosen four or five to read. And then after reading these four or five texts, I want to suggest seven theological points that we can learn about God's assembly, the church as we are to exist today. First of all, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, here is one of Luke's several summary statements in the book of Acts. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. When he found him, that is Barnabas finding Paul, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Acts 14 in verse 27. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Again, a summary statement that Luke has for us at the conclusion of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Just a few verses later in Acts 15, uh, as uh, this uh, controversy arises between uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians on uh, obedience to the law of Moses. The church sends Paul and Barnabas and some other representatives down to Jerusalem to discuss this matter. And it says the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told the Gentiles, uh, told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church there and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Acts 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. And then one final text, Acts chapter 20 and verse uh, 28, as Paul is rushing uh, to get to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of Pentecost, calls for the elders of Ephesus to meet him uh, in Miletus. And there, uh, Luke records for us this long speech, this long dialogue that Paul has with this, this group of elders that he had become so close to. Uh, during his time in Ephesus, he says this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. So here is just a brief sampling of the 19 occurrences 
in the book of Acts where the word ecclesia is found. And again, it's typically, at least in context regarding disciples of Jesus or the body of Christ, is translated as uh, church. So now let me, let me suggest seven kind of theological points uh, about the church this morning. Again, seeking to emphasize a better understanding of who we are as God's people. Uh, just to kind of recalibrate, so to speak, uh, in the words of, of Roe, to, to gain or to regain uh, our theological bearings uh, concerning who we are as uh, God's people. Number one, first and foremost, the church is composed of the saved. The people of God called out of this world to gather together as saved people because of their faith and obedience to the gospel of Jesus. Now, we might go to Acts 2 and verse 47, where in some of the older translations of our New Testament, uh, it reads, uh, again, kind of a, a summary statement by Luke, uh, not long after the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 were baptized, that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Uh, in the best manuscripts, the word church is not found there, but it is certainly uh, implied. In this text, uh, in and of itself, uh, certainly suggests that the church is composed of the saved. So salvation was simultaneously a summons to be the church, to gather as God's people. And we'll get to that point here in, in just a moment. And God knows who, those who belong to him because, uh, secondly, the church belongs to God. I find it very, very interesting what Paul said uh, to those Ephesian uh, elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. He, he tells them to be shepherds of the church of God. It belongs to God. doesn't belong to us. We may think it does, but it belongs to God. And Paul even says it was purchased with his blood. And you see uh, kind of an implication of the Trinity and the deity of Christ there in how Jesus shedding his blood symbolically is the shedding of, of God's own blood, emphasizing the cost of the church, God giving his own son. And so it belongs to God. Number three, as the word suggests, it gathers, that is the church, and then it scatters. So there, there are two points to this third point if you will, or two subpoints. First of all, the church gathers. Right? Again, very practically speaking, that's the meaning of the word ecclesia. Yes, we're called out, but we're called out for a reason. We're called out to gather together. And I would remind us of what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10 and verse 25. Uh, we've typically used that text, the old translation, not forsaking the assembly, of not to miss church. But again, we are the church. And, and I have suggested uh, previously, uh, through a study of that verse, that we need to broaden our understanding a little bit of what the writer is saying there. He's certainly saying, don't miss the assembly on Sunday. 
But I think in, in reality, what he is saying is don't miss any opportunity you have together with fellow Christians, whether it be Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, a life group, or sometime during the week just to drink coffee. You know, I've got, I've got two opportunities this weekend to gather with some of you, and I'm going to take advantage of that opportunity. For one thing, I know there's going to be desserts there. There will be some other food, but especially the desserts, all right? And, and, and so why, why do we gather? Well, we, we can see in the book of Acts, and we can even see in that Hebrews 10 passage, we gather to worship, yes, but to encourage each other, to, to build relationships. So I want to slip this in real quick. A brand new book by David Kinneman and Mark Medlock. It's titled Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. And one of those five ways is this. When isolation and mistrust are the norms, and they argue that is typical in our culture and society today, that, that people tend to isolate themselves. They tend to be very independent. Um, a lot of mistrust out there in culture generally. Because of this, they say, forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. Or they put it this way, solo discipleship may well be an oxymoron. And what they're saying is they're emphasizing the importance of Christians coming together, of being together. And, and yes, not forsaking the assembling on Sunday morning, but really not forsaking any time. Again, we have opportunity to be together. Sometimes it's larger groups such as this. Sometimes it's smaller groups like our life group or a Bible class or a Wednesday night class. Sometimes it may just be a handful of us or even only two of us just coming together to build relationships, to encourage each other, and to, to get support for what we are seeking to do and be as God's people today. So the church gathers. You see this all the way through Acts. In Acts 2, in Acts 4, in Acts 15, in Acts 20, and really up until the time the book ends when Paul is found in prison. But once we gather and all the desserts are gone, then we scatter. We go out into the world. And, and what, what really we're saying in, in our context, we're fulfilling restore all things of our vision statement. I mean, to restore all things is to take the kingdom of God into this world and to reach lost and lonely people to serve our community. We, we, we gather, and then we scatter like a covey of quail. Not many left in this part of the country, but that's what quail do. They gather, and then they scatter. Lord, uh, or at least Risa and I, and my mother, experienced a little bit of that uh, Thursday Thanksgiving Day. Right? 
dropped Lori and uh, Jed off and Ada, drove on up to Oklahoma City, arrived about 12.15. Reese and I assumed we'd try to find a nice restaurant to take my mother out for Thanksgiving. Well, when I got up there, three full-fledged Thanksgiving dinners had been delivered to the ICU waiting room at Mercy Hospital, and they were from the Memorial Road Church of Christ. And Neil Arder, uh, I'm sure you know, you guys know Neil. Macy's here this morning. Uh, Neil Arder has been at OC uh, for as long as I can remember, part of the administration there. He and his wife and teenage daughter delivered these, again, I had turkey, I had dressing, I had mashed potatoes and gravy, I had a yeast roll, I had cranberry sauce, green beans, and homemade pie. And I said, Neil, this is wonderful, who did this? And he said, every year there's a group of ladies that gather and then put these meals together at Memorial Road and then they scatter. And these meals, I don't know how many hundreds were delivered. Uh, but that was the church being the church and serving their community. And these meals were delivered to policemen and firemen and those in hospitals and those in nursing homes all over Oklahoma City. They were restoring all things, helping people just experience a little bit of heaven on earth who were in difficult circumstances. And again, that's what the church did in Acts. Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 8, Acts 12, Acts 15, throughout the whole book. And and we see Paul and Peter and John talk about in the letters they wrote to churches. And so a part of being God's people, yes, we, we come together, but we don't cocoon. We don't stay together, we then scatter because of the spirit who lives within us and because of the calling God has assigned to us. We gather and we scatter. Number four, we learn from the book of Acts that the church is both universal and local. And this is where unity of all believers comes into play from our vision statement. Uh, Again, we become a part of God's church, universal body of Christ. But then we seek to identify ourselves with a local body of believers, just like they did in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Colossae, and all the other churches and congregations that we can read about uh, in the New Testament. You know, you go over uh, to uh, Romans 16, and At the conclusion of that letter, uh, Paul seems to identify six, maybe seven or eight little congregations, house churches within the city of Rome. And those brethren understood that they were part of God's people universal, but then they sought to identify and worship and work with a local congregation. And and so again, the, the importance of being a part of a local body Uh, a local assembly where we can grow and and work uh, together. Number five, it is diverse but unified. Diverse but unified. Um, 
some of the early challenges that we read about in the book of Acts concerning the church uh, addressed issues of unity. Uh, Would Gentiles be welcomed into the church of God? Would Gentiles be a part of the body of Christ? And how would they look and and what uh, would they be required to do? But it was not only a Jew-Gentile diversity. There There were other diversities. There were Greeks. There were Romans. There were all kinds of ethnic backgrounds now brought together into this assembly that has convened as God's people. And and just just look around for a moment and and just notice and think how diverse we are. Now, we have a lot in common, right? You know, we live here in Paris, Texas, and we're citizens of the United States, and and we have all sorts of things in, in common, but in reality, we're also very diverse. We come from a variety of circumstances, uh, different families, different traditions, different ways of thinking. But that is the power of the body of Jesus, the blood of Christ, bringing us all uh, together. So again, really thinking about the unity of believers. Number six, its significance is not determined by size or location, but by the presence of the Spirit. One of the dominant themes of the book of Acts is how active God's Spirit was. And and in fact, a number of scholars suggest that uh, the Acts of the Apostles, this book, should be renamed Acts of the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit filled those early Christians and empowered them with courage and boldness uh, to go out. And, and that's, what, that's what determines the significance of a church. The Spirit, God's Spirit living within us. Uh, I've, been, I've been blessed to have worked with, with a variety of churches. Right? Uh, one, when I stepped aside from ministry for about a year and was working uh, as a hospice chaplain, I kind of got into a rotation of preaching uh, once or twice a month for a little church in St. Louis, Oklahoma. Not the home of the Cardinals, St. Louis, Oklahoma. It's not even on a major uh, highway. And there was a group uh, of Christians that had the best little building in their entire community. Some, a good Sunday with Lori and I, there were 12 of us. And, and there, there was another little congregation about 10 miles east, uh, another congregation about 20 miles south. Uh, they could have driven in to Tecumseh or Shawnee, Oklahoma, if they wanted to be a part of a larger church, but no. They, they insisted on staying right there. They, they still gather. I think they're down to eight now. Had a, have had a couple of deaths in the congregation the last three or four years. They want to maintain a presence in their community. The Spirit of God is alive in that little group of, of people. So, so often we, we get kind of hung up on, on numbers and size and, and location and, and, and all sorts of things, and there are times to think about those things. But let's not neglect our dependence 
upon God's spirit. And then finally, number seven. The church is on a mission. Uh, Roe, in one of his chapters in his book, asked this question. Who can think of acts without mission? We have typically used the word mission or missionary in reference to those we send outside of the country to some foreign land. And, and, and that's good. That's okay. But I've, I've just recently, in the last eight to ten years, really um, been attracted to this word, mission, locally and individually. And, and make the point that in reality, we're all missionaries. The word mission, the English word mission, comes from a Latin word which simply means to be sent. So anyone who is sent for any reason is a missionary. And, and we've just emphasized we, we gather, but then we scatter. We scatter because in reality, God has sent us forth. And we call that the Great Commission. Go. And we go somewhere practically every day, right? And so we are on uh, a mission. Mission is the necessary response to the universal lordship of God in Jesus Christ. It is he we represent as we go forth into the world. And what is interesting about Christianity, Roe also makes this point, exactly none of the pagan religions had a strong missionary drive. The Christian mission is, in Luke's way of reading reality, a witness to a world that is upside down. That's one of the dominant themes of Roe's little, little treatise, of course coming from Acts 17 and verse 6. So there are seven theological points, again, to help us to kind of regain our theological bearings of what it means to be the church of God or the church of Christ, an assembly, a community, a convocation of God's people. And so we reach the end of the book of Acts. And Acts ends in somewhat of a peculiar way. It's, it's open-ended. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we really like to know what happened to the Apostle Paul? Now, we've, we've got some evidence from Christian tradition and, and, and Christian history, but the book ends with Paul in Rome under house arrest, apparently awaiting to make his appeal before Caesar. And the very last word in the Greek text and in some of our English translations, the very last word that Luke has in this book is usually translated without hindrance. Well, what is without hindrance? Paul's proclamation about the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's point seems to be, Paul may be under house arrest. 
Paul's ability to go forth as he once did to share the gospel of Jesus may be somewhat hindered. But in reality, no. No. Even under house arrest, he was able to share his faith. People were able to visit with him. As he makes his appeal, he's able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. The kingdom is God's work, and whatever obstacles and setbacks along the way, God steadily advances it. God is at work to accomplish his purposes through his church. And is the church a building? No. He accomplishes his work through you and through me. Here's the way William Willimon concludes his commentary on Acts. As the contemporary American church finds itself pushed to the periphery of the dominant culture, severed from its former props and social crutches, the encouraging words of Acts may take on a relevance unknown to Christians in our more successful days. A triumphalist gospel is a dangerous temptation for a successful church, but an appropriate source of encouragement for the Lord's persecuted and oppressed. You and I live in the continuation of the story of Acts. Acts must close in an open-ended fashion, with the door still open for work and witness rather than closed by death because the Spirit is still active. Luke is not simply writing history. He writes the story of the Spirit, the Spirit incarnate in people like you and me. So church, we have gathered this morning. We have been reminded of who we are as God's people. And here in just a minute, we're going to sing another song. We're going to go to Bible class. And then guess what? We're going to scatter. And we're going to scatter throughout all the week. Seeking through the power of God's Spirit who lives within us to spread the gospel of Jesus. Let's stand.